I love this quote by uh, Spurgeon. This is what he says about Psalm 51. He says, This psalm is the brightest gem in the entire Psalter. It contains instructions so large, doctrines so precious, that the tongues of angels could not do justice to its full development. Right? So this is a pastor preparing his congregation for the type of sermon they're about to get. So fair warning. If Spurgeon, who was described, by the way, as the prince of preachers, had to war his congregation, that does not bode well for you this morning listening to me, okay? My only hope is that I don't mess this up as we talk about these precious doctrines that we really do find in Psalm 51. It's one of our favorite chapters in the Psalter, maybe even in Scripture as Christians. Why? Uh, Because it's so applicable for a room full of sinners like ourselves, isn't it? And we know why. In this chapter, Psalm 51, David does such a beautiful job describing the power of God's grace. And also, he gives us the words that you and I need. Remember, the Psalter, it gives us the words for life. In Psalm 51, we receive the words that we need to recover when we fall into sin. Uh, So I'm really excited to study this with you. It's very practical. As you're opening up to Psalm 51, just a little bit of historical context Uh, This is uh, David's own personal confession of sin, right? And uh, the context of that sin is found back in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12, which is otherwise described as one of the darkest seasons, the darkest season of David's life when he committed high crimes against both Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, I'm sure you remember that story, but just to to remind you, um, David was about 40, He was in the prime of his life. He was in the prime of his career as the king of Israel. He's accomplished much. He's defeated most of their enemies. He's expanded their kingdom. There's much wealth and prosperity for the people of God. So one day he just decides to, in the middle of wartime, mind you, he decides to skirt his responsibilities as commander-in-chief. He literally sends his fellas Uh, to do his battle, to do his war for him as he hangs back in Jerusalem to enjoy the luxuries of life. And that's what he does. So on one day, he's just walking around his palace grounds while everybody else is off fighting a war. He's home, walking around the palace grounds, which, if you can imagine, is akin to the Acropolis that we see in Athens, right? It's just this giant palace that sat on the top of Jerusalem where he could just look out and see anything that he wanted to. So he was just strolling, enjoying the sights and the sounds, and then from the corner of his eye, something catches his attention. This beautiful woman named Bathsheba, who was bathing in the privacy of her own home. Now we think to ourselves, if he saw her, how is she bathing in the privacy of her own home? Well, back then, the showers and the bathrooms, they did not have a ceiling. That's just the way they were constructed. So from his vantage point, he could easily look in on her as she was simply bathing. Now David... We think that he'd be the kind of guy that would avert his attention, avert his eyes, because after all, he is described as a man after God's own heart, isn't he? That's not what he does. He stared at her, and he lusted after her. And we know what happened after that. Nothing short of a great injustice and abuse of power. He sins for her. Now, keep in mind, he's king, right? And even though she's the wife of one of his top generals, he is still king, so it's not like she's going to say no. He sent for her. Then he took advantage of her, all of which resulted in her becoming pregnant. Now, when David found that out, he became terrified. 
He was terrified that other folks were going to find out about that. So he wanted to protect his good name. He wanted to keep shame from falling on his house. So he did all these different things to, to cover that up, none of which worked. But he finally accomplished what he wanted to do, and it culminated in organizing and orchestrating the murder of one of his top generals, a good friend of his that's been with him since the beginning, Uriah. David commits high crimes against both Bathsheba and Uriah, a man after God's own heart, one of the darkest seasons of his life. About a year passes, that's all taking place in chapter 11, about a year passes, and we think to ourselves, the reader thinks to themselves, that it looks like David got away with it. No one's talked about this. David surely hasn't talked about this. Local newspapers never brought it up. It seems as if he got away with this thing. However, from the evidence that we have in Scripture of what was going on inside David's heart, we know that was not the case. David suffered greatly from what I like to call the trauma of unconfessed sin. David, in Psalm 32, he says that the vitality of his life was like morning dew that would evaporate under the afternoon sun. That was him saying that there was just, he was lifeless, he was without joy. For a full year, he had this unconfessed sin, this grievous sin. He had pent-up anxiety, pent-up guilt, pent-up shame, and it was ripping at his soul. And he lived that way for a full year. That is, until the prophet Nathan came into his life to confront him. Psalm 51 is the result of that confrontation. And after this confrontation that Nathan has with David and God has with David, everything changes. And that's why it's one of our favorite chapters in all of Scripture, because in it, we see the amazing power of God's grace and what we must do to recover when we fall. Let's read it together. Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips And my mouth will declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar.
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us again this morning together as brothers that we might have fellowship with one another, but that also that we might open your life-giving word. We thank you for King David. We thank you for rescuing him. We thank you for giving him the boldness and the vulnerability to actually write down this horrible season in his life so that we might see how powerful and amazing you are. Uh, Lord God, we pray that we wouldn't simply be informed, but that we would be transformed by your life-giving word. We pray this in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. The trauma of unconfessed sin. Y'all may have heard me talk about this before. Um, I read an article uh, from the New York Times. It was backdated 2006 about two women who conducted this study called Inside Out. Uh, the goal of their study uh, was, it's unusual, their goal of their study was to see how many strangers they could get to confess those things they were most ashamed of. They didn't use the word sin, but that's what they were getting at in the article. They were, they were seeing how many people they could get to confess their sins, those things they don't want anybody to know about. In order to accomplish this, this is what they did. They hung out on this corner in the middle of New York, and they had this sign behind them uh, that said, air your dirty laundry, 100% confidential, anonymous, free. And so we think to ourselves, who in their right mind would do that? I mean, even if their name was not attached to it. I mean, there is the by chance that people could put two and two together and bring that back towards us. I mean, why would anybody? Turns out hundreds of people wanted to do that. They lined up for it. People from all walks of life, they lined up to air their dirty laundry. And their confessions just ranged from all over the map. Some of them were kind of funny. My personal favorite is that my son's hermit crab was still alive when I pitched it down the garbage chute. All right. I'm pretty sure my dad did that to a couple of my goldfish, but that's neither here nor there. Some of them got a little bit more serious. Admissions of guilt. I'm a racist was one. Implication was he was ashamed of that. He didn't want anybody to know that, but in his heart he was. Some of it was admissions of, of past sins. A woman wrote that I had an abortion five years ago. Implication was no one in her family knew about that. No one knew about that. She didn't want anybody to know about that. Some of it was intrusive thoughts. I'm in a loveless marriage. I think I'm going to have an affair with my secretary. Just an intrusive thought, this this mind-wandering this man had that he felt so guilty, so ashamed of, that he's been hiding it in, but he just wanted to do anything he could to confess it. More like that, hundreds of confessions similar to that. Now, what's really interesting, when you look at these, there's a few observations that you can make. Number one, these people, just like everyone else, hide what they're most ashamed of. They don't want anybody to find out how truly wicked they are, so they hide those things. Two, in their hiding, they experience the trauma of unconfessed sin. They experienced, as David writes, the broken bones of their guilt. They were haunted by their shame. And we know down deep as Christians that there's nothing that anybody can do to run away from their sin. Time does not forgive you of your sin. Time and hiding things does not heal you from transgressions that you've made. Even non-believers know that. I think John Lennon, I forget what the song was, but didn't he, when there a line in one of the Beatles songs, um, the one thing you cannot hide is when you're crippled inside. What song was that? I can't remember, but he did say that. 
People know that. People know they can't run away from these things. So number one, people hide what they're most ashamed of. Two, they experience the, the trauma of that unconfessed sin, the broken bones of guilt. They're haunted by their shame. Thirdly, the other observation was they were desperate to find release from those things. And they knew what they were doing with this whole little game these women had wasn't going to do a darn thing. They knew that this wasn't going to help them, but they were desperate for it, so that's why they did it. They just want to find freedom. They're tired of hiding. They're tired of living a duplicit life. They're tired of having the integrity of their sleep robbed. They were tired. Have you ever experienced that trauma of unconfessed sin? David was there. David experienced that, but what's amazing about Psalm 51 is that David, in spite of all the things that he did, after he entered into this confrontation with Nathan and God, he left singing. Can you imagine that? After, after doing the things that he had done, leaving God's holy presence, singing with joy, we say to ourselves, how in the world can a man who has done those things which in the world's eyes are much more grievous than most of the sins that we have committed, how in the world can this man recover? How can this man, who's been described as a man after God's own heart, God's chief chorister, the song man of heaven, how can he possibly even face God again? How could he ever have joy knowing the things that he has done? How could he recover from his fear, his guilt, and his shame? Brothers, the answer is repentance. Repentance. There's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to this area of the Christian life. Sometimes we think that repentance is about beating ourselves up. It's this groveling admission that we're just dirty worms. Nothing further could be from the truth. Yes, it's useless to go confess your sins anonymously to random people on the street corner. It's not useless with biblical repentance. I heard Dick Cain say one time, the phrase, I have sinned against the Lord that is a sentence filled with hope. Why? Because it's a sentence filled with God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that repentance is a gift. It is a grace unto life. In Psalm 51, it gives us the words that we need to experience that grace-filled life when we fall. Now, there's five points we're going to look at. The last four is the actual process of repentance. But before we look at that, I think it's important that we just see what's going on in the title even before we get to David's prayer, there's something important that we need to see, and it's right there in the title. Right under Psalm 51, uh, there's a title there that, that points back to the context of what was going on in David's life. Right? And in that context, in that title, this is what I think we see. We see the initiating grace of God. The very thing that makes David's prayer of repentance possible. We have to see how amazing God is in that he initiates grace you don't just one day decide to repent. You decide to repent because the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart. There is an initiating grace of God that we have to understand here. And this is what I mean by that. David, even though he was a miserable wretch, even though his bones were broken, I mean, he was just living in misery, this unconfessed sin, this trauma. There's absolutely no evidence in the scriptures that he was going to do anything about it which is certainly an indictment on our human nature, isn't it? I mean, he was perfectly content of just going on as business as usual, hiding this thing from everybody else, pretending like it didn't happen. He was perfectly content walking down the road to hell until God in his grace sent Nathan into his life. This is what we learn from that. The only difference between David 
on the road to perdition and David restored to the joy of his salvation is not his muster. It is not his resolve to be better. It's not his fear of God. It's not his fear of man. It is this. It is God's grace alone. And the same is true of you too. Friends, the only difference between us being the worst of us The only difference between me and you walking on the road of sin and destruction and us walking on the road of a repentant life towards Christ, in Christ to glory, is the grace of God. That is the only difference. God, in his grace, grabbed David and brought him to a place of repentance. Now, how does he do this? Well, right here, let's just look at David's life. He did it in two different ways. One, he did it through his word. God sent the prophet Nathan into David's life. But what is the job of a prophet? The job of a prophet is to deliver the word of God, is it not? And that's exactly what Nathan did to David. He delivered the word of God. And two things happen in David's life, if you remember. David, he gives this sermon, or rather, Nathan, he gives this sermon, he gives this parable. This parable about this great act of injustice, you can read about it. Um, But it demanded the death of the offender. And, of course, David, he heard, he heard this, uh, this uh, uh, parable, and he got all up in arms, and he said, justice must be had. Then, then Nathan delivers what has got to be the most devastating sermon application in the history of preaching, okay? Because, oh, is that right, David? Guess what? You are the man. I mean, can you imagine just sitting in whatever church you go to and the preacher looking at you? Hey, guess what? I'm talking about you, Bob. That's what happened here. He said, you are the man. It doesn't matter what you think about your sin. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about your sin. It doesn't matter how bad you or how good you've hid your sin. God knows what you've done. And God knows who you are. You are the man, Nathan says. And David understood that finally because later in verse 4, he says, I have sinned in thy sight, God. And when he says that, what he's meaning, um, uh, really what he's saying, he's saying, God, I know now who I am before you. The, 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 what I am before you is not really the king of Israel. I'm not your chorister. I'm not a choir boy. I'm, I'm, I'm not anybody other than a sinner. That's who I am. I'm a sinner before you, a just and holy God. I've fallen short of your glory. That's exactly who I am, David says. See, what happened here is that his, his conscience got educated. That's what God's word does to us. That's what God's word does to us. It educates our conscience first and foremost. Right, Because without God's law, without God's word, we would never be able to judge whether our guilt is right and proportionate. Sometimes we never experience guilt over the things that we should experience guilt over. Sometimes we experience way too much guilt over things that we should never feel guilty about, those of us who have guilt complexes. Without the law of God, without the word of God, we would never be able to judge rightly. Right, But God enters his life with his word so that he might know for sure who he is before God. He's a sinner. He saw his sins in light of how God sees his sins. And friends, that's not a curse. That is a blessing to see your sins, how God sees them. Because ultimately, when we do that, it draws us back to God, which is the second thing the word of God did in David's life. Paul tells us this in Romans 3. That's the the use of the law, isn't it? That's the mirror use of the law. It shows us our sin, but in the same time, it woos us back to God. It woos us to Christ, and that's what it did in David's life. So in God's initiating grace, he sent God's word, he sent his own word into David's life through the prophet Nathan. But he also did something else. He also sent Nathan into David's life. Yes, God sent his word, but he got one of David's good friends to deliver it. Poor Nathan. Can you 
Can you imagine the intestinal fortitude that man had to have had to rebuke the king of Israel, who is named and described as a man after God's own heart? I mean, how scary might that have I think it's scary because I know exactly how I respond when people convict me, and it's, I act like a little petulant child sometimes. It's not pretty. I can't imagine having to do that to a king, but I can tell you what, no matter if it hurt, and of course it hurts to be convicted of your sin, David was thankful for Nathan, and I am thankful for my Nathan too, even though I don't initially act like it. Why? Because without Nathan, I would be dead. Without Nathan, David would have been dead. We need Nathans to awaken us to the reality that we are the man. I married one of my, my Nathans, and God bless her. She knows how sometimes I can act. But she is always faithful. All the Nathans in my life are faithful to do different things. They, they're there to, to lift me when I fall, as we see in Ecclesiastes 4. They're there to gently rebuke me in love, as we see in Galatians 6, 1, 2. And they're there to tell me that I am the man, especially when I don't see that in myself. We need Nathans. Nathan would not have been Nathan without having a Nathan himself. We need Nathans. Do you have a Nathan? If you don't, get one. There's plenty of Nathans in this room that would love to walk in this life with you, brothers. Because just as God's word is a tool of God's initiating grace, so are Nathans that he uses to restore us in grace. Okay, now the ultimate goal of God's initiating grace was ultimately to bring uh, David to a place of repentance, which is exactly what Psalm 51 is. It's a great blessing. It's a necessity of the Christian life. Tim Keller, he says that the gospel is only an untapped power in our life until it's released through biblical repentance. Okay, so repentance, it's a grace. Psalm 51 shows us how to tap in that power. First and foremost, number one, in repentance, we must appeal to God's character. We see this in verses one and two. That's the first thing that we do when we fall in sin. We simply run to God and appeal to who he is as our God. Now, before we look at that, there's something really interesting I want us to know. In verses 1 and 2, see how completely aware that David finally is of his sin. This is a complete reversal of what he was like before he had that interaction with Nathan. Previously, up until this point, he didn't really care how sinful he was. I doubt he even understood the, the, the grave situation that he was in as a sinner. But now he has complete awareness of who he is. He uses three words to describe his sin nature. Three words, three synonyms. And when he does this, he's not being wordy, okay? He just wants us to know how treacherous he is. He's under no illusion of who he is before God. He doesn't want us to be under illusion of who he is either. He says, the most important thing you can know about me is this. One, I'm a sinner. He says, I sin. What does that mean? That means that he has missed the mark. He has fallen short of God's glory, the penalty of which is separation, eternal separation and alienation from God. All of which applies to us, the Bible says. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, not only that, he says that he has iniquity. What does that mean? That means that's, that his entire human nature has been distorted. It's been marred. It's been twisted out of God's design. That's describing the fall. We still are created in the image of God, but that image has been marred because we have been twisted. Lastly, he uses that word transgression. What does that mean? That means that he has committed a high crime against the high king of heaven himself. That means that he's committed treason, complete rebellion. All of this to say is David is saying that these two things that I've done in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that's not an aberration of my otherwise upright life. That is rather a manifestation of how twisted my heart is. 
And the truth is we have to see ourselves that way. We have to cultivate an awareness of our sin because even though hopefully our sins are not like David, when it comes to our plight before God as sinners, it doesn't really make a difference. Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Even a desire to do the things that David does is enough to necessitate nails through Christ's hands. But even still, even though it's important for us to cultivate an awareness of our sin, that is still not the most important thing that we see in verses 1 and 2. What is the most important thing? The most important thing is is that David appeals to the grace of God. Look what he says in verse 1. In verse 1, David pleads for God's mercy and the basis of his appeal. Don't, Don't miss this. The basis of his appeal is not his sorrow. It's not his tears. It's not his regret. It's God's grace alone. It's important that we don't miss that. It's a necessity that we don't miss that. So much so that the Holy Spirit who inspired this organized David's thoughts in such a way and moved the the pen in his hand in such a way that in the very sentence structure of verses 1 and 2, we see the form of how grace actually works in our life, the formula of saving and transforming grace. We see how it works in verses 1 and 2. Look look, look how this plays out, the structure of it. At the very beginning of verse 1, David calls on to the name of God. The holy name of God. God, you're there. You're holy God. Then at the very end of verse 2, he describes himself as a sinner. So you see it. Here's God in all of his holiness, and here's me as a wretched sinner. But then what does he say right there in the middle at the end of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2? This is what he says. He appeals for God to show mercy based on the hesed, the unfailing covenant love of God. Hesed is that Old Testament word for God's love, which is describing his covenantal love. So this is essentially what David is saying. In complete boldness, with audacity, he's saying, God, you are holy. I am a sinner. I deserve nothing from you. I deserve death. But would you please put your grace between your holiness and myself? That's what David is doing. How could he possibly pray something like that? I mean, it's almost like he just went right into God's throne room and said, yeah, I'm a sinner. God, please put your grace between me and your holiness. That's the first thing that he does. How does he have the audacity to say such a thing like that? He's essentially saying, God, don't treat me like I am, right? Not based off what I've done, but because you're a compassionate God and you're devoted to me, even though I have not been devoted to you, put your grace between me and your sin. How in the world does he have the audacity to say that? Because through the ministry of Nathan, he was reminded exactly of the kind of God you and I serve. He was reminded that we have the God who picks us up when we fall, who beckons us to himself when we sin. He's the kind of God who remains faithful to the covenant with his people. Even when we are faithless, it's the same God who picks us up with his covenant love because he is our covenant God. That's the love of God. Friends, do you know that love? When you fall to sin, do you run to the Lord? How how often do we stumble right out of the gates when we fall in sin and we try to confess our sin? How often do we stumble out of the gate, right, because we refuse to immediately run to God? We think to ourselves, yeah, I have to clean myself up a little bit before I go into his throne room. I mean, he's not going to accept me like this. Friends, when we do that, we, we assassinate God's character because essentially what we're saying is that we're afraid of our father. We're afraid of him, which is very way, the very reason that we sit in the first place, right? Just like Adam and Eve, they assassinated God's character. They did not trust God to do an act for their good. This is why we sin, but even in our sin... Right? We don't trust God with our sin because we still don't trust him with it. But this text teaches us we have every reason to trust God as our father. 
He's not out for retribution. He's out for our restoration. We are his kids. And he loves us with a love that's beyond comprehension. Brothers, do not prevent yourself from experiencing this love and grace of God by listening to the voice of Satan who tempts you to despair. Rather, hear the voice of your Father in heaven who beckons you to himself, who beckons you to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and drink deeply from his cup of grace. That's what, that's, that's how, that's what God does. He loves you so much, he initiates grace with you. He, he, he cultivates your heart in order to draw you back to himself, not to visit wrath upon you, but to lavish you with his heavenly riches. First and foremost, when we fall into sin, don't worry about cleaning yourself up. Immediately run to God, the God who welcomes you with open, loving, covenant arms. Secondly, after we appeal to God, make a good confession. We see this in verses 3 through 6. That's a strange phrase, good confession. What in the world does that mean? One of our pastors here, Tim Russell, he often says that when he leads us in prayers of corporate confession and worship service. What's a good confession? Essentially what that means is, is that we make a full and honest confession. First off, we own our sin, and secondly, we actually grieve it with a godly grief. Now, this doesn't seem like it needs to be said, actually confess your sins when you repent, but I think sometimes we miss these. We don't own our sin fully, and we certainly don't grieve it always with a godly grief. We politic our sins sometimes. We politic our confessions often. Sometimes we gloss over our sin. Uh, rather than calling sin sins, we call them mistakes. That's the big thing in psychology today. Don't call your sins or your misdeeds sins. That's just going to give you a guilt complex. They're mistakes. Call them mistakes. Friends, that's stupid, okay? Because there's a great difference between mistakes and breaking the law. You may have made the mistake of going five miles over the limit to get to amen this morning. If you went 100 down Poplar, you broke the law, okay? That's jail time. There's a difference between mistakes and sin. But sometimes we gloss over our sins. Sometimes we blame shift, right? It's always someone else's fault, ultimately. I'm sorry I said that four-letter word, honey, but Ole Miss threw it on the one-yard line. What's Matt Luke thinking? It's his fault. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lord. It was Eve who ate the apple. It looked delicious. What was I supposed to do? I'm sorry, Pastor. Yeah, I had an affair, but my wife, she's, she berates me all the time. What was I supposed to do? We blame shift. Sometimes we just, we, just, we just get scared and afraid of the consequences of our sin rather than actually grieve the sins themselves. We do that. We politic our sins. The only problem is that's not a good confession. That's not repentance. David shows us what is. First off, he takes responsibility of his sin. He says this in verse 3. He uses words like me, mine, and my. This is my sin, no one else's. Sure, the culture, the context might provide the opportunity for sin. Others might incite my sin. But ultimately, I'm the one responsible for my sin, David says. For most of his career as king, especially in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, he shirked his responsibility. He shirked his responsibility as king. He shirked his responsibility of having integrity. He told Joab, who was in with it, of killing Uriah. He says, Joab, I know that you're upset, but don't be worried. It's not your fault. It's not my fault that Uriah died. It was the Ammonites. They're the ones that did it. He's tired of shirking his responsibility. He's not going to shirk his responsibility as a sinner. He says, I am the man. He takes responsibility for his sin. Now, how does he do that? In two ways. One, he takes responsibility for the, um, for the high offense of his sin. In verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, God. 
He's taking responsibility of the high offense of his sin. Now, modern readers look at that and they think to themselves, David looks like he's you know, avoiding responsibility for once again for what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. This is another great injustice. One person you sinned against? Really, <laughs> there's at least two other people that I could list that you sinned against. It's like your kid stealing your credit card out of your wallet to buy the latest Fortnite game, whatever that thing is. And you confront your kid, and he says, I'm sorry, Dad, but you know what? I did business with God. Everything's cool. No? You stole my credit? What kind of planet do you live on? There's repercussions for the things that we do. Of course there is. And this is not what this is happening here. There's passages all over the place that say when we sin against other people, there need to be reparations. We need to make things right. That's what the story of Zacchaeus is about. That's full repentance. That's just not the point that David is addressing. The justice that David is talking about is finally seeing the high offense of his sin as God sees it. He says, yes, I've sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I've sinned against Uriah. But my highest crime is that I've sinned against the God who loves me. I've broken laws. Yeah, but that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that I've broken God's heart who loves me with a covenantal love, who offers me free grace. I've trampled him, David says. So he owns that. He also owns the source of his sin. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, he's not blame shifting. He's not blaming Mother David. He's talking about original sin. He says, I, I'm a sinner not because I sin, but rather I sin because I'm a sinner. That's just who I am through and through. The most important thing you can know about me, church, is that I am a sinner through and through. And so he owns that. He makes a good confession by owning the fullness of his sin, but also notice that he grieves a godly grief over that fact. And there's evidence of this all over the passage, but uh, really what we have to understand here is that there's a giant difference between godly grief and fear. Okay, fear is of the devil. Godly grief is of God. One leads to despair. The other leads to restoration. David grieved a godly grief over the fact that he was a sinner and that he had sinned. How do we know? Two pieces of evidence. One, he was not afraid of the temporal consequences. There are temporal consequences for a lot of the sins that we commit. You go 100 down Poplar, you're probably going to go to jail. There's all, I mean, we're forgiven by God, but there's always going to be temporal consequences, and Lord knows David had them. Even after Samuel went to David and told him the good news, he says, David, you are forgiven. God loves you. He forgives you. But brother, let me tell you, there's going to be some consequences of this because of the ethos you created in your family by your actions. Four of your kids are going to die. And they do. Later in life, they die. And you know David grieved that when it happened, and I'm sure there were other prayers that David prayed that God would spare them and have mercy, but that's not evident in Psalm 51. That was the furthest thing from his mind. Why? We'll get to it. The other piece of evidence that we have is that he was not afraid of God. There's, there, there's no such prayer in, in Psalm 51 where he's saying, God, you're going to squash me like a bug. Please have mercy. There, there's none of that. The only thing that we see in here is that he's remorseful and sad that he sinned against his father. Which is both heartbreaking but also heart-filling because only a child of God can have that inclination to grieve that and that alone. The most important thing for David in his sin was that he'd be made right once again with his father. That's what he wanted. He had a godly grief. Friends, uh, being aware of your sin and grieving it, that's not a curse. It's a blessing because it's only, it's only people that feel the burden of their sin that will seek grace. 
It's kind of like when you're in the darkness of the night. It's only then that you're able to see the beauty of the stars. It's only in the darkness of our sins that we look towards Christ. That's why it's so important that we make an honest and full confession. Because it's when we grieve our sins, then finally we'll cling to the promises of God. And that's our third step in the thing of repentance here. We see this in verses 7 through 12. We must believe on the grace of God. We not only make a good confession, we also must believe on the grace of God. The reformers would say there's two uh, aspects to repentance. The first aspect is to recognize your sin. That's what we've been talking about. David's already done that. The second aspect is to recognize the promises of God and actually believe them. To actually believe what Psalm 51 says and all the promises of the gospel, believe those things apply to you. And the reformers would say that, unfortunately, we don't often do that. We have a hard time doing that. Friends, there's, there's two turns in repentance. Repentance, it's a military term. It's kind of an about face. There's two turns. We, one, in repentance, first off, we turn away from our sin, but then also we return towards Christ. We turn towards his grace. It's so important that when we turn away from sin, we don't just stay there, but we turn towards grace. We turn towards the promises of God. Why? Because if we don't do that, we're in no better position than Judas. Don't you know Judas fretted and was worried and was ashamed over the things that he had done to Christ? He took his own life because of it. Why? Because he never went to the Father. He never sought grace. He just mourned over his sin. When we turn away from our sin, don't stay there. Turn towards, friends, the promises of God. So many of us experience the trauma of unconfessed sin. Many more of us experience the trauma of not really believing the promises of God apply to us. Tim Keller even confessed this in his own life. He said three years after his conversion, he got so fed up with the faith. He was, he was a believer, but he didn't notice any change in his life. He, he didn't experience any release from the things that we've been talking about in Psalm 51. And he came to the conclusion, the reason that that was so, that he wasn't growing, that he wasn't finding this release, is because he wasn't repenting right. And he said, that sounded silly to me at the time, because isn't repentance natural to the believer? I mean, we don't take breathing classes as human beings. But it turns out he was not repenting right. It wasn't until he read the mortification of sin, a couple of the other Puritans, and studied chapters like Psalm 51 that he understood what repentance means. Tim Keller, he he grieved his sin. He confessed his sin. He hated his sin. But he had a hard time applying the promises of God to himself. Friends, we need our hearts to be recalibrated. I've heard it said, I think it was actually Tim Keller that said this, that our consciences and our hearts are often like smoke alarms. If you have a smoke alarm that works right, you're like the only one is what he said. I mean, if you think about it, all the smoke alarms I've ever had, they never work. They always have to be recalibrated. Sometimes they go off with the strike of a match. Other times they go off only from the stench of a smoking body. There's no in-between. You have to recalibrate those things over and over again to make sure they're working right. So is true of our hearts. We have to recalibrate our hearts. We have to go into the word of God, that initiating grace that God gives us, and read the promises of the gospel over and over again because they are too good to be true. They are true in Christ, but it is a fantastic, unbelievable blessing, the gospel of Christ. Our souls and our hearts and our consciences, marred in sin, don't want to believe it. How can we possibly believe that's true? It's true. We need to recalibrate our hearts. We need to abide in God's word to remind ourselves that these things apply to us. We need to recalibrate our hearts. There's four words that David uses here. Four words for sin. Friends, there are 19 verbs for the actions of God's grace in Psalm 51. Don't you know, even in his depravity, even in the 
in the depths of this hell that David was leaving, that he still believed in the promises of God? The promises of God apply to you, and no matter what it is that you've done or where you've been, the gospel rings true in Christ. We must believe on the promises of God. Friends, there's two aspects of God's grace in this chapter that David appeals to. And so if you don't believe God loves you, if you don't believe the power of the gospel, listen to these two aspects of God's grace. Number one, David appeals to the cleansing grace of God in verse 7. David David pleads with the Lord, Lord, please cleanse me and wash me. David was dirty. He felt it. No matter how much he showered, no matter what he did, he just felt it. And those of us who have been trapped in sin before or struggled with addiction, we've felt that dirtiness. We've just felt that dirtiness of our souls. One of my favorite shows way back when was Dirty Jobs with uh, Steve Rowe, I think was his name. Do y'all remember that? Um, there's, uh, I loved it. There's this one episode that Steve would later say was his least favorite episode, which just happened to be my favorite. Uh, he had to go clean a sewage facility. That was his goal. That was his job. He had to put on a, a wetsuit with a mask, with a little breathing tank, and jump into this sea of filth to clean out filters in the sewage facility. After it was over, he had to take four showers with special cleaning chemicals just to get the smell off. He said that even didn't work. It was a full two weeks before he felt clean. That's what David's soul was like. Nothing he could do could free himself of the stench of his sin. Look at the words he uses here. He says his heart was hard. He wanted a new heart. His heart was dead in this. His eyes were closed. His lips were sealed. The songman of heaven no longer had a tune to sing. The vitality and the, and the richness and the intimacy of his relationship with Yahweh was snuffed out. He was tired of it. And there was not a dadgum thing he could do about it, so he went into God's throne room, threw himself on his lap, and says, God, I can't do anything. You do it. You fix me, is what he said. How is he going to do that? Look what he says, the cleansing grace. He says, God, I need you to wash me. He uses that, that phrase, the, the hyssop plant that was used by the, the Levitical priest to sprinkle water over people that had leprosy. But when David uses it here, he's talking about this inward cleaning, the way that he uses it. It's this inward cleaning. So he's not saying, not only forgive me, O Lord, but free me of sin altogether. And what's amazing is, is that God actually does it. Notice the confidence that David has. He doesn't say, Father, clean me, and I might be white as snow. He says, you clean me, and I will be white as snow. You don't need my tears. You don't need my good works. All I need is grace. If you give it, I will be white as snow. And the Father gives it to him. He cleanses him. He doesn't just remove the the guilt of his sin. He removes the stain of his sin. He he doesn't just wash behind your ears, folks. He purifies your soul, God does. Have you experienced the joy of forgiveness sin like that? David did. He cleanses us. But not only that, it gets better. He also gives us his restorative grace. We see that in verses 8 through 12. God doesn't just want to forgive you, Christians. He wants to restore you. He doesn't want to just get you out of the red, get you out of bankruptcy. He opens up his storehouses and gives you the heavenly blessings of heaven. He makes you rich in blessing. God doesn't just forgive us. He restores us. How does he restore us? Well, number one, he returns us to the joy of our salvation. Even Christians can lose the joy of their salvation. If you've struggled with a sin, if you've been caught in some sort of uh, just addiction, something that you're ashamed of, you know that you can leave and, and not experience that joy that you normally would have as a Christian. Joy, by the way, is the hallmark characteristic, Paul says, of the Christian life. 
he, he goes to the Galatians and knew they were not following Jesus. They were fooling around with some legalistic thing because they didn't have joy. He says, Galatians, what has happened to your joy? In Philippians, he, he, he commends the Philippians for having the joy that they did, but still he continues to pray they would have more joy. Jesus himself, in John 15, Todd talked about this several weeks ago, um, says, abide in him, abide in his word, know his gospel, believe it to be true for you, so that my divine joy might be in you, and therefore your joy complete. Which means, friends, that the joys that we have, the small little happinesses that we have in this life, are blessings from God, but there's something insufficient about them. The joy that we get from our friends, the joy that we get from our kids, the joy that we get from our families and our jobs, those are gifts from God, but there's something superficial about them. Only the joy of Christ can fulfill you and satisfy you. The joy of knowing that you're loved by God and you're saved in Christ. It's, such a, it's a joy that only a child of God can experience, a, child, a, a joy that is so otherworldly that David even thanks God for his broken bones. I've had a broken bone before. There's nothing joyful about it. What is David talking about? He's talking about severe mercy. He is thanking God that God has allowed him to experience the suffering of the consequences of his sin. He's got, God, thank you for allowing me to be found out. Thank you for letting me experience that shocking prick of my conscience. Thank you for, before that happened, allowing me to experience dryness in my relationship with you so that I would know that there's something wrong with my heart. Because it's only then I'm ever going to come back to you. Isn't that not the story of the prodigal son? I guarantee you, when that boy came back to his father, he was thankful for the fact that he experienced the shame of spending his father's wealth, of lying and pig slot for night on night. Because it was those things, it was that shame, it was that suffering that finally brought him back to God, that brought him back to his father. That's severe mercy. God will all but destroy you in order to save you. And the joy of our salvation is so joyous, David is thankful for those things. He's thankful for his broken bones because he's able to experience that joy. Secondly, he allows us to experience his good pleasure. The pleasure of knowing that he favors us. I love what David says right here. I think this is in verse, uh, uh, verse 9. David says, essentially, God, you have removed my sin. You've forgiven my sin. You've taken my guilt away. You've obliterated my record. You've washed me. But God, guess what? I still need more. I need to know that you delight in me. I need to know that you love me. I need to know that you delight in me. I want to experience the pleasure of knowing that I'm delighted in by Yahweh. And friends, that is just the, the natural tendency that all kids have of their dad. I experienced this yesterday. I was sick yesterday. I wasn't in a good mood, and I was preparing for this. And my son, who's 18 months, just started walking, by the way, which is awesome. He kept on coming into my office. And I was busy. I wasn't really paying attention to what he was doing. I just became irritated. <laughs> so, you know, do the dishes or something at 18 months. I kept on yelling at uh, getting my wife to come in there and pick up my son, take him out of the room. Kept on playing with my toes and taking my papers off and closing my commentaries. Just really irritated me. Finally, I looked down at him, and this is what he was doing. He had this giant smile on his face. He was crying, but I finally looked at him. He was just like this. As a new dad, that melted my heart. So I bent down, and I picked up my son, and he had like a kung fu grip. I could have done the Leo DiCaprio from Titanic, just arms, reckless, abandoned, and he wouldn't have gone anywhere because he was just squeezing the life out of me. So for 10 minutes, I just held him, and he was perfectly content. He just wanted to know that I loved him, that I delighted in him. 
It's not a desire that we have from our Father that we want to know He delights in us. Brothers, you can know that God, your Father, delights in you. In Christ, God the Father delights in you. On the day to come, He will look to you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And David is able to experience that now, that pleasure, through the process of repentance. Lastly, he's restored to the thoroughness of being made new. One of the things that I do wrongly when someone convicts me of my sin is I become defensive. But then after I snap out of that, another thing that I do wrongly is that I immediately try to fix myself. I don't, it's like Tim the Toolman Taylor, just give me the tools, I'll take care of it. What do I need to do? David doesn't do that. David had every resource available to him. He was the richest man in the universe. He had all the Nathans that he could possibly have. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, God, let me know what I need to do. I'll fix it. He said, God, you do something. He uses this word create. He uses this word create, and it's really cool, this word. is bara in Hebrew, which is the exact same word that God used to create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And he uses that here. And so essentially what David is saying, God, I know that I can't fix myself. I've tried that. I'm done with it. I know I can't fix myself. Do something new. Create something new. But God, don't even use the old parts. They're worn out. They're dirty. Don't even, don't even try to mend them back together. Please create something new in me. Take away my desire to do sin. Take away the stain, this feeling that I have. I never want to leave you again, God. Create something new in me. And friends, that's what God does. For the first-time believer who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart. He gives us his spirit. He makes us new creations. But for the repentant Christian, he does the new creation work in you day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit, making you more and more like Christ. He makes us new every single day until that new day, that new day dawns when we're made perfect just like Christ. He's working that new creation in us now. And so David, he experiences this. He experiences that newness, finally. Now, friends, for us to understand, for this grace to be transformative in our life, uh, uh, Tim Keller says we also have to understand how high of a cost this grace is. For it to really do its work, we have to understand how high of a cost it is. Make no mistake about it, the grace that God offers you is free but the cost to pay for that grace was definitely not free. There was a high cost. Uh, it's amazing how ahead of his time uh, David's theology was. He knew that the Old Testament laws, the Levitical laws, the Old Testament sacrificial system, he knows that that was not going to do anything for a sinner like him. He was way too dirty for the blood of bulls to do a dadgum thing. He knew that. He knew that those things were placeholders for something else that God was going to do in the future. He didn't know exactly what that was going to be. But whatever that was, he placed his faith in it insofar as much as Jesus Christ was revealed to him. However, even though that he knew that God was compassionate and had the will to act and was going to do something in the future, he could have possibly no idea of the cost that God was going to have to pay to answer the prayer of Psalm 51. He had no idea how this promise was going to be fulfilled and paid for. He couldn't have possibly have known it was going to cost God his son. Jesus Christ says in Luke 24 that all of Scripture points to me, all of the Old Testament points to me, including Psalm 51. This passage, just like Psalm 46, drips with Christ. Psalm 51 isn't about David's victory over sin. It's not about our victory over sin. It's about Jesus Christ's victory over sin. It's not really about what we must do to repent either. It's about what Jesus Christ has done to make repentance possible. Look here at verse 2. Blot out my transgressions. How in the world is he going to do that? Remember, they didn't have computers or number two pencils with erasers back then. 
blot out my transgressions, do away with my record, take away my debt? How are they going to do that? Things were written on stone tablets back then. They had to break those stone tablets and make something completely new. How is God going to do that? Well, he tells us through Isaiah chapter 53. This is what he says. I'm going to do it by piercing him for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds are we healed. We, like all sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pay attention to the words that are used there for sin are the exact same word that David used to describe himself in verse 2. Sinner, iniquity, transgressions, all of which find their cure in Christ. How is he going to blot out his transgressions? Through Christ. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. That plant was the very same plant that the people in the Old Testament used in the Exodus account to spread blood over the doorposts. It's the same plant that the Levitical priest used to, to sprinkle water over lepers to make them ritually clean. How is he going to do that? What's the answer? Well, the Apostle John tells us the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. What does the Apostle Paul say? This hits a little bit closer to that Old Testament Exodus account. He says that we have been justified by his blood. Much more than that, we have been saved from the very wrath of God. Jesus does that. Verse 9 and 11, hide your face from my sin. Do not cast me away. How's God going to do that one? How, can he's going to, how is he going to remain just in dealing with our sin? Our sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. How is he going to answer that question? This is how we answer it. Through the screams of his son on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, but he screamed that on the cross right before he breathed his last so that you and I in him would never have to ask that question. He was shunned so that we wouldn't have to be. Every single one of David's needs, every single one of your needs, brothers, is answered in Christ. It's when we understand that, that costliness of the grace, that the transformative work of the gospel begins to take place in our lives. We have to understand how costly God's grace is. Sometimes we, we dismiss that. Friends, cheap grace doesn't do anything. Costly grace does. For example, I cannot remember one person who's ever spotted me a $5 bill when I needed it. However, I can remember every single family and every single person who gave large sums of money to my family so we could adopt our baby boy. I'm indebted to those people. And when you understand how costly the grace of God is, you become indebted to his grace. That's when transformation begins to work. Friends, you might have a hard time believing that God loves you. We struggle with that sometimes. But if, if that's you, maybe this will help. Psalm 51 is not simply just for David. It's not simply just about David. It's not simply just about God's love for David. It's about you too. The Holy Spirit worked through David's life to pen Psalm 51. Thus, these are the very words of Jesus written through David to be given to you. Jesus wrote and said and promised and achieved these things for you personally. There's no way around that. If you have a hard time thinking about that, believing that, insert your name in Psalm 51. It still rings true. This is the high cost. His son, who willingly gave his life so that you might know the restorative power of grace. So number one, we come to our Father. We confess our sins. We believe on the promises of God. And very quickly, I know we need to go. We respond in the life lived. We respond in grace. We, we live according to grace. This is what we see in verses 13 through 19. These last seven verses remind us about how expansive the gospel is. 
Jesus doesn't just save us from our sin. He saved us for life with himself. And not just a life in hereafter, that perfect life, but also a life now that we can actually live that gives God glory. So there's three things that he says that we do, and these are fruits of repentance. Uh, number one, we become preachers. Not, you know, if you go to seminary, you don't have to don a robe on Sundays and get behind a pulpit, but we all become preachers, sinners saved by grace. I mean, seriously, all of us, we have our favorite doctors. The only thing that a doctor needs to do in this town to get a lot of clients is to help one of you because he knows that you're going to go to amen and brag about them. It's hilarious that one of the things that we do now getting older, especially the older you get, you know, you give people your name, what you do, maybe who your wife is. You certainly tell them who your doctor is. And it's like, it's like on your card. This is my cardiologist. This is my blank doctor or whatever it might be because we want to brag about our doctor. How much more so about the true physician who has saved us? The person who has been saved by grace brags about their Savior. That's why former addicts and new converts are the best preachers. Because they've been in the grave and now they're alive and they want to tell people about it. Isn't that what we see in the woman at the well? The adulterous woman who was caught in her sin time after time. When Jesus says, you are forgiven, what did she do? Almost rudely, she left Jesus' presence, went to the next town to tell everybody about this man who forgives sin. We become preachers. We tell people. That's just what happens. That's a natural manifestation of a sinner saved by grace. Secondly, we become worshipers. Now, what Paul, or rather what David is talking about in these verses, in verses 14 through 16, is the motivation of corporate worship. Our motivation changes. Israel were great corporate worshipers. They went to the synagogue all the time. They went to temple. They did all the sacrifices and, and all, all the other different things. But they were still rebuked, right? Because why? Their motivation was all wrong. They were just going through the motions. He says, as sinners saved by grace, our motivations change. It doesn't become religious to us. It doesn't become rote or monotonous. But there's a great desire to thank the God who saved us. The most important part of our week, Christians, is to go to corporate worship, to join with other sinners saved by grace, to worship the God who has saved us. That is what we'll be doing for all of eternity, and we get a sliver of that now. We judge, I think George says we judge the, the, the remaining weeks we have together in this world, not by when we're going to retire, not by when Friday is, living for the weekend, or not by Sunday NFL package, whoever your favorite team is. We judge, the, the, we, we count our remaining time together as Christians by how many days of corporate worship we have left. That should be the overarching desire of our hearts to enter into his throne room and to worship him together with sinners saved by grace. Lastly, we're, we become yearners. I could have chosen a better word for this, but this is what I chose. Sinners saved by grace yearn to be with God. In verses eight through 18 through 19, David's ambition completely changes. He's no longer living for himself, but he's longing to be with God in glory, with all of God's people where righteousness and peace reign. He has found freedom from the penalty of sin. He longs for the day where he has freedom from the presence of sin. As we see in the New Testament, as we make that our ultimate longing, we will seek to bring that kingdom of righteousness to bear in the present. A massive transformative work happened in David's life. He confessed his sin. He grieved it. But then he jumped on the mercy lap of God. He experienced the freedom of God's grace, and it compelled him to live anew and afresh. The G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite authors, not for the reasons that you might think. He wrote that book, Orthodoxy. It's a big-time book. He's an apologist, was an apologist. I actually like him for his detective stories, Father Brown, which you can watch on Netflix, a little plug. Great stories. 
Um, but G.K. Chesterton, he was known for telling really profound truths and embedding them in comedy. He had a sharp wit. So people, he would say these things or write these things, and people would laugh once they read them. Um, but once they actually just took a moment to think about what he'd actually say, they were stopped in their tracks, and they would ponder this profound truth that he was. It was like the first mic drop ever. The best example of this is in the early 1900s when the London Times asked a whole bunch of people at GK, a bunch of famous people in London, to submit an essay of what they thought was wrong with the world. And so GK did it, and this is what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. People laughed, but then they understood what he was doing. All the other people that wrote in essays did what we would have done. They wrote about all these long treaties of, of why that nation or, or that political party or that person or, or, or this issue, societal issue, those are the real problems of the world. They looked on the outside of themselves, but G.K. said, yeah, the same thing that's wrong with your world is the very same thing with my world. I'm the problem. What, what, Dave, what, what, what he was trying to get the world to do is the exact same thing that Psalm 51 is trying to do. It's trying to get us, as resistant as we are, to simply say, I am the man. Because it's not until we say, I am the man, that we will experience the transformative power of the gospel. It's when we say, I am the man, that changes begin to happen, and we find release and we experience the joy of God's grace. Friends, I think there's some folks in here that, that simply need to say, I am the man for the very first time. And the rest of us need to remind ourselves that we are still the man. We're in very much need of God's grace today as we were when we first believed. And we can have absolute confidence of saying, I am the man for this reason alone. Because Jesus says, I am the lamb the one who takes away the sin of men. In Christ alone, brothers, we can say, I am the man, because Jesus as the lamb takes away our sin. Would you answer the call of David, and would you cry out, would you cry out for the hessed love of God? Because, brothers, I don't care who you are or what thing that you have done, when you do that, you will experience the joy of grace, because he has answered that hessed love in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like David understood, we know that we do not deserve your gospel. There's nothing we could ever do, no amount of tears we could cry, no amount of good works that we could accomplish that would ever make us worthy of your grace. And that's why we're so thankful that you love us still. That, Father, we are more sinful than we ever dared to imagine, but we are more loved by you than we ever dared hope. The promise of the gospel that you so loved the world that you sent your only son so that whoever might believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Let that promise ring true in our hearts. Let us finally give up and simply throw ourselves on your mercy lap. Restore us the joy of your salvation and let us experience the mighty transforming power of your grace each and every day. Help us, Father, to be Nathans to one another. Help us to have the courage to speak truth into each other's life as we follow you together until that beautiful day when you come and return and take us home and make all things new. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.